0: Hello and welcome to the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast brought to you by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. Uh today we're delighted to welcome Emily Learmont to the podcast. And um Emily's going to tell us a little bit about somebody who I know very little about. Um Emily, would you like to introduce yourself and your research and your work?
1: Hi, Carl, thank you very much. Um yes, I'm I'm Emily. I'm um an artist and an art historian, and I'm currently um, writing a doctoral thesis on William Bell Scott. Um, It's a collaborative doctoral partnership studentship. Um, So it's held with the University of Edinburgh and also the National Galleries of Scotland.
0: And you're also involved in the Pre-Raphaelite Society, aren't you? I what,
1: am, yes. This is something <laughs> we're just setting up at the moment, a Pre-Raphaelite Society graduate network, and I'm the coordinator for that. Um, so if you're interested in joining, then please do sign up.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Maybe we will um, we could do another podcast episode on that at some yes. point. That would be fantastic. Now, William Bowscott's not somebody I've, I, well, I thought I hadn't, heard of him really I, I mean I, I've certainly heard the name and I knew, knew a few of the iconic artworks but it turns out he painted Swinburne's uh, famous portrait and actually they had quite a close working partnership so maybe I do know a bit more about him <laughs> I thought I did would you would you like to tell everybody tell me a bit more about William Bell Scott could you Yes, about his yes life, of course. His
1: um, well, he was born in um, 1811 in Edinburgh um, in a house called Hermits and Hermits, which is not far from where I am now. Actually, it's um, in a district called St. Leonard's um, near the old town of Edinburgh. And he studied at the high school. He was a pupil there. And then he took classes at the Trustees Academy in drawing. Um, he then helped his father in his engraving workshop. He had an engraving workshop in the Royal Mile. And then he moved down to London in 1837. Um, He became involved in the group of artists known as the the Clique, um, which included William Powell Thryth and Augustus Egg and um, Richard Dadd. Um, And he uh, tried to make a living as as an artist and an illustrator. Um, in 1842 there was the competitions to um, design frescoes for the Palace of Westminster and so he entered that and he wasn't chosen as one of the artists um, to paint a fresco but his cartoon was his design was um, noticed Um, and he was offered a job Um, as the the master of the government schools of design in Newcastle. Um, So he moved up to Newcastle and he spent 20 years there um, as the master. It was a very successful school and it taught the new methods of um, teaching art and design for for manufacturing purposes, um, as well as the fine arts. He became involved with the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood actually a year before um, they they were founded. Gabriel Rossetti wrote to him in 1847. Um, He wrote to him, um, congratulating him on his poetry because William Bell Scott was a poet Mm. um, as much as an as much as an artist, Um, and um, so they became friends. They exchanged letters, and William Bell Scott went down to stay in London with the Rossetti family, and he was very friendly with with William, with Maria, and with with Christina Rossetti, as much as with Gabriel Rossetti. So that's how he became involved um, in the pre-Raphaelite social circle. And this was a friendship that lasted until the end of um, Rossetti's life. Um, His best known work is probably... Uh, a a large series of eight paintings, um, large scale paintings, um, which he produced for Wallington, which is now a National Trust property in Northumberland. So he painted these for Sir, Sir Walter, Um, Trevelyan and his wife, Pauline Trevelyan. And and some of these are quite well known. Um, It's a series that um, tells the history of the English border. And it starts with Hadrian's Wall and the Romans. That painting is is quite well known. It's it's full of incredible detail. And it ends with a a painting um, called um, Iron and Coal, which is also very well known. It's reproduced in a lot of books about the pre-Raphaelites and also about Scottish art. Um, so that that was the, the the series that he considered to be his his greatest um, works.
0: Yeah, the the iron and coal ones, uh, fantastic, isn't it? Because I, I was having a look at some of uh, William Bal Scott's artwork, and a lot a lot of it's very medieval, like you say, focused on the Scottish border. But that seems very different. I didn't realise it was actually part of the series telling the history of the the borders, if you like.
1: Yes, that's right. There are three scenes of Anglo-Saxon life, and every single detail is very was very deeply researched by him, and often based on real objects and real texts um, that he had got hold of.
0: And, and the Iron and Coal, in particular, um, speaks a lot to the Pre-Raphaelites about painting the the sort of world around them in quite meticulous detail. And <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I, because it's quite a it's quite an oppressive sweaty image isn't it it's, it's you can feel the heat of the furnaces in that picture it's fantastic you you, you know it, re- it reminds me of all the criticism that um the pre-raphaelites got about them being quite sort of disgusting and almost too realistic
1: apparently really- Ruskin didn't like subject of the painting. Oh, really? um, according to William Bell Scott Ruskin didn't like the subject of the painting because he didn't like to see that um, type of representation of Labour. But okay. they were not great friends Ruskin and William Bell Scott um, didn't uh, like each other very much. Um,
0: there, there is that photograph isn't there of William Bell Scott, Dante Rossetti and John Ruskin all, that's all right. together. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. So they were acquainted. Yes,
1: they did know each other. Um, Lady Trevelyan wanted to introduce them because she was a great friend of Ruskin. So she sent William Bell Scott to meet Ruskin, um, and they they didn't really hit it off, oh. unfortunately. Um, and so they 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 never really got on very well. Ruskin was a bit critical of Scott's paintings at Wallington, um, and yes, they sort of had diff- differing ideas about teaching theories. Um, and I suspect there was a little bit of um, rivalry involved um, over their friendships with Lady Trevelyan and with Rossetti, too.
0: OK, and that's making me think of sort, sort of English and Scottish pre-Raphaelite connections, because, of course, uh, R- Ruskin was great had a great affinity with Scotland, didn't he? <laughs>
1: Yes, he did. And he was very supportive of um another Scottish artist who's connected to the pre-Raphaelites, um, so Noel Payton, and he went to visit Noel Payton's house at Wooers Alley. Um so he did he did come up to Scotland. He gave his famous Edinburgh lectures. Um and he stayed at Wallington a number of times too.
0: That's really interesting. Just just thinking about particularly sort of Scottish connections with pre Raphaelitism. Back to William Bell Scott then. So mm-hmm. it was, he he travelled around a lot didn't he London Scotland he
1: did London Scotland the northeast of England he made he travelled on the continent as well he travelled to Germany and to and to France and to Italy on several occasions and he was very enthused and inspired by everything that he saw there
0: so would you say that those were his key works then the
1: the... that's what he considered to be his best I mean they are the the paintings at Wallington that they're almost two metres square. They're full of detail. They were exhibited at the time. Every time he finished one of the paintings, they were shown in Newcastle um, and they were reported in the press. They were visited by hundreds of people, according to the press reviews. And then when he'd finished the entire series of eight, they were all shown at the French Gallery and by Gambart. And they were very generally very well received um, in the um, the national press as well. So he made his name with these paintings. He established his, his credentials as a history painter, and also as somebody who was sort of employing Pre-Raphaelite techniques. But he went on to do other. Um, schemes, decorative schemes, too. He he painted a mural at Penkill Castle. Penkill Castle is in Ayrshire in southwest Scotland. It's privately owned, um, and it was the home of Alice Boyd, who was um, the great love of his life. And he painted um, a mural um, on the curved wall of a circular stair tower there, and oh. that's on the subject of the King's Square um so that's absolutely beautiful it's very medievalizing in style um it's a it's a really special place to to visit um if you should be so fortunate and um i think that was a project that was really dear to his own heart he he spent a lot of time at penkill castle and he the last years of his life were spent there he died at penkill castle Um, But he went on to also produce a very impressive large scale scheme for the South Kensington Museum, which would have been even greater had it been actually fully commissioned by the museum. But he, he painted a series of stained glass windows for what was then the ceramic gallery, but now is the silver gallery. And these were taken down, unfortunately, in the 1920s. But they were very impressive, and it was a very sort of labour-intensive um, project to undertake. And he was helped in this by Alice Boyd. Um, she she painted um, some of the decorations and some of the scenes as well. She was a very talented artist in her own right.
0: OK. And, and, and is this the screen that... Uh you'd like to talk about today?
1: I'd like to talk to you about a screen.
0: Okay, (laughs) uh, tell me about this screen. (laughs) This
1: screen, I know, it's a a wonderful work of art. It um, was gifted to the National Galleries of Scotland in 2001, but it was in a very fragile um, condition. It was sort of badly discoloured and it was ripped um, in places. So it has now been conserved and it's, one of the highlights of the new, newly re- redeveloped Scottish galleries of the National Galleries of Scotland, which are at the Scottish National Gallery on the mound um, on Princes Street in Edinburgh. Oh, yeah, um, so I, I, I'd really like to tell you a bit about this. It's a, a wonderful work of art. It should be um, possible for listeners to see it on the National Galleries of Scotland online collection now oh, um, and you'll be able to sort of zoom in and see all the glorious details.
0: Okay now it's a bit of a, a hidden screen isn't it <laughs> quite quite literally where where's it been for the past 50 years?
1: <laughs> well we don't quite know actually I mean it was sold um, in um, the late 19th century by the person who had commissioned it uh, and we don't know very much about its provenance it's sort of seems to slightly vanish, Um, but it re-emerged in um, 1968 when it was last exhibited at the Lane Gallery in in Newcastle. And then it was gifted to the galleries, Um, but because it's required an awful lot of conservation, um, it has taken a while for this all to happen, but the the redevelopment of the Scottish galleries was provided the kind of the perfect opportunity for this to happen. So it's never, it hasn't been seen in public since um, 1968, and it has never been reproduced before. So it is very much, um, has been very much a lost work of art, but we really hope that it will be seen and enjoyed by all the very many visitors um, to the galleries now.
0: I hope so. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's, it's always nice when a, a lost piece of artwork comes sort of back back to life, you know, back into um, sort of the, the public sphere um can can you tell us a little bit about the Scottish collection at uh, the national galleries of scotland what what's happened
1: what's happened well um the National Galleries of Scotland, as you can imagine, has a very good collection of Scottish paintings, but it's never been possible to display it in its full splendor because the galleries were um limited in space I mean it has a very fine international collection as well um so um new Galleries have been built um, uh-huh. on the same site as the Scottish National Gallery, but they, they sort of go um, beneath the gallery. And I don't know if you know Edinburgh, but there's a there's a Princess Street Gardens and, and Waverley Station goes through that. Yes. So um, the new galleries look out over Princess Street Gardens. They have really spectacular views from the windows okay. and they're really spacious. Um much more of the collection has been able to be um, displayed um, than before. Um, And there is a particular focus on Victorian paintings, I'm glad to say. And um, there are works on display of pre-Raphaelite interest by artists such as William Dice, Sir Noel Payton, Waller Hugh Payton, and William Bell Scott. Um, William Bell Scott's one of his best-known paintings is Una and the Lion, and this is a great favourite with visitors to the Scottish <laughs> National Gallery. So that will be on display and the King's Quare screen, um, and also there's going to be a small exhibition of, of drawings by Scott um, relating to his King's Quare mural at Penkill Castle, and that will be next year sometime. Fantastic.
0: I can mark and feel a trip to Edinburgh coming on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's a well worth a trip on the train. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh no, it's a wonderful city. I've been a couple of times. Fantastic. Um, so t- tell us a bit more about the screen and what does it de- depict? Because I, I I've not seen it in in person. What what's on the screen?
1: Well, it, it's a screen. As I keep saying, it's um. I'm sure you know, Carl, that screens were very fashionable in Victorian interiors. Um, they were often imported from Japan. So this is quite use- unusual that it's um, a sort of a British or even Scottish um, screen. It's divided into four panels. And William Bell Scott called these leaves, a bit like the leaves of a book. And they're large scale. It's over two meters high and almost two meters wide so it's you know really impressive um, and these panels or leaves they're hinged together with what were actually piano hinges and so it can be sort of arranged in different in different formations and it's it's most common to arrange a folding screen in kind of a zigzag formation and this can be used to to divide a room but they can also be um, arranged like little kind of alcoves or niches that somebody can sort of sit inside. Maybe if they're sitting by the fire, they might want to have a screen like this kind of folded around them just to prevent drafts from going down the, the back of their necks. Or if you wanted to kind of maybe change your clothes or something, um, you could sort of stand inside a niche like this. Um, so it's it's quite unusual um, as an art object in, in that it's, an, it's actually an item of furniture. And that's probably why it was... You know, a little bit damaged because it, it had been used as a item of household furniture. I'll try and describe it to you. <laughs> There's a lot to describe. <laughs> I should start off by saying that the back is very beautiful. It is um, covered in a dark red-brown Morocco leather and this has been stamped with gold motifs, a bit like the cover, of a book, a beautiful illuminated manuscript, yeah. for example, or a Victorian illustrated book. So it really evokes, the whole object evokes the culture of the book. Um, so that's the back. The front, um, again, it's, it's, it's got this very detailed representation of the poem, The King is Square, so, this was a poem that was written in the 15th century by King James I of Scotland. And he was um, captured by pirates when he was fleeing Scotland um, because noblemen at home were sort of rising up against his father, the king. So, his father sent him away. The idea was that he would go to France. But he was captured by pirates, and the pirates handed him over to the English. Um, And so James was imprisoned by the English in Windsor Castle for 18 years. Some of that time he was sort of imprisoned, um, but a lot of that time he was a member of the court, although he didn't have the freedom to to go home if he wanted Mm. to. Um, And he was a poet. He was a musician. um, And he was also an artist. He illuminated manuscripts himself. Mm. Um, And his, his poem, The King is Square, it tells of, how he met and fell in love with his future wife, Lady Joan Beaufort. Um, And he he wrote this poem at, well, it's sort of thought that he maybe wrote it not long after he had been released from captivity. And there's um, a a manuscript copy of this, um, which is, not in his own handwriting but it's a a recording of the poem which is held in the Bodleian Library. And this was discovered by Scottish antiquaries in the 18th century. It was discovered by William Tytler, and he um, transcribed the poem and he published it. So it was kind of known to people who were interested in um, historical Scottish poems um, in Scotland. And William Bell Scott was given a copy of it as a child, he always really loved this poem. I should say it's that it's written in early Scots. So yeah. it's, um, <laughs> it's um it's um it's very, very beautiful, it's a very graphic poem, and it's quite humorous and teasing as well. It's a wonderful poem to read, and and, and you can buy an annotated copy, which helps with. Um, understanding the early Scots. So that's what William Bell Scott he this is what he painted on on the walls of Penkill Castle. He then received a commission to produce a screen on the same subject and I should say that um, the patron of the screen was James Lethart who was a Newcastle lead manufacturer and he built up a very important collection of pre-Raphaelite paintings he owned He owned um, The Highling Shepherd by William Holman Hunt and Autumn Leaves um, by Millay and William Bell Scott and he were great friends and and Scott, um, uh, he helped to introduce Lethar to his pre-Raphaelite friends and he um, advised him on on works to, to buy and to commission. So that's how the screen came about. And so it shows the same imagery as the mural in Penkill Castle, although it omits one scene. Um, shall I try and describe it to you? <laughs> Ooh, yeah,
0: that'd be fantastic. OK, see, but... there's a
1: lot to describe, um, so bear with me. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll start with the first
0: yeah. panel, or
1: leaf, um, as Scott called it. And this shows um, a scene of the battlements of Windsor Castle and um, you can see King James in a turret behind bars and he is holding a quill and he's writing the poem, he's beginning to write the poem um, on um, a sheaf of of paper and the story is that he couldn't sleep one night so he decided to read The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius Um, and when he woke up in the morning he heard a bell toll. And he imagined that the bell was telling him to write down his own story. So that's what you see in, in this first leaf. There's a, there's a bronze statue reading the consolation of, of philosophy. Um, so that kind of alludes to, to that part of the poem. And um, there are also um, uh, soldiers, the guards of the night watch walking along um, the battlements. And they've got um banners, some of these have the lion passant of the English coat of arms. And then outside King James's window, there is the lion rampant, you know, the symbol of the Scottish Mm -hmm. monarchs. So there's a lot of heraldry um, in in this imagery. Um, And you can see the River Thames with boats on it and um, the wooden rooftops of, of Windsor Castle as Scott imagined it to have been in the 15th century. In the mural, in this equivalent scene in the mural, um, according to an anecdote, um, William Holman Hunt is supposed to have modelled, um, or, or, or I should say that Scott modelled um, one of these guards on William Holman Hunt. I'm not quite sure whether he painted it from life or whether it was just from his recollection. Um But in in the screen, it's a lot less specific. You can't really say that it's a portrait Mm. of William Holman Hunt, but it's kind of good to know that in the back of your mind um, that he was kind of referencing his and Lethart's friends um, in the screen. Um, The bottom section of the screen um, is painted. um, I think it's a kind of Indian red colored paint. And it has the silhouettes of branches of trees on it and um, banderoles, you know, like scrolls. And these have got words written on them from the poem. Um, So that kind of helps who's ever looking at the the screen to kind of um, match the verses Mm -hmm. of the poem to the imagery. The second um, panel, or leaf, um, has a section at the top Um, And this is actually um, being created by applying gold leaf and then painting on top of it. Um, And it shows the three fates. Um, So three women, and one of them is spinning, one of them has a distaff, and one of them has um, a large key hanging from her waist, as if she has the power to set um, King James free. And this kind of, again, it... um, uh, refers to lines in the poem. William Bell Scott knew the poem very well. And so the main section of the screen of the panel shows um, the prison garden. So in the background, you can see King James's turret, and um, he's looking out of it into this beautiful garden. There's a birch tree in the centre and there are huge um, there are, um hedges of, of yew and lots and lots of flowers and um, Lady Joan Beaufort is, is standing there um, Scott always referred to her as Lady Jane and, and Lady Jane is written on the screen um, and she's shown actually looking quite pretty rough light she's wearing a green dress with a pink sort of underskirt and she's got um, a red gold billowing hair um, and a necklace um, which has a ruby um, in a heart shape um, and this again is mentioned in the poem and she's there with her ladies-in-waiting listening watching a little nightingale singing on a sundial um and cupid is behind her and um cupid is pointing his arrow at james as if he's just about to inflict the wound of love <laughs> um so this is about how james first spied lady jane and, and fell in love with her and it's a really attractive um uh, leaf in the screen it's just full of beautiful flowers and, and colors the third leaf um has um cupid at the top in another one of these little sections with gold leaf i'm um, looking outwards at us actually um with its bow and with his bow and arrow and underneath that is a scene of um the garden of the court of venus so in the poem James then, he sort of falls into a visionary state and he dreams that he visits the goddess Venus to ask her advice on winning the hand of Lady Jane. So this is the garden of of Venus and Venus is seated in this very spectacular throne which is made up of entwined dolphins' tails. (laughs) Um, And you can see James um, being presented to to venus he's presented by st george actually or a knight with the cross of st george on his front and there's a a procession of poets in the background and there's a little bit of a swinburne reference here oh, okay. i think uh, although this is slightly me hypothesizing but okay. it's a, it's a, it's a, i should say that swinburne some of the figures in the mural were based on swinburne Oh, yeah. So there is a connection there. But in the screen, um, there's a procession of poets. And one of the poets has red, sort of a cloud of red hair, a bit like William (laughs) Bell Scott's portrait of Swinburne. And James Letharp met Swinburne. um, He went to stay with Scott and his wife when they lived in London. And Scott invited Swinburne round for supper and Um, I don't quite know how Swinburne behaved, but there seemed to be something that when they were writing about it later, there was quite a lot of exclamations and raised eyebrow type comments. (laughs) Yes, he
0: he was known for that at the time.
1: (laughs) Anyway, it was obviously an interesting evening. So I just sort of, this is just me kind of maybe pushing things a little bit, but Hmm. I just wonder if that's um, a representation of Swinburne in in the screen that James Letharth might have recognised.
0: It might well be. They were close friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then in the foreground there's a there's a fountain um with lots of beautiful with water kind of spurting out of the fountain. And then there are lovers arranged all around um the fountain. In the mural in the castle, one of these figures was based on William Michael Rossetti and another on Christina Rossetti. So they did visit the castle while Scott was painting the mural. But in the screen, they're, they're much smaller scale and they're more g- generic faces. But James Leathart would have known about this connection with with the wider Pre-Raphaelite circle. Um, and again, it's got a lower section with um, with scrolls with words from the poems and. Um, uh, the silhouettes of, I think, myrtle. So myrtle is a plant associated with love and the goddess Venus in art. <laughs> and then the last um, leaf um, shows, it shows the the conclusion of, of the poem and the story. And um, again, it's set at Windsor Castle on, on the balcony and you can see um, Lady Jane standing in what looks like a kind of open turret with a white dove. And um according to the poem, she wrote her words of love, her promise of love, um, in gold on the stems of um a jilly flower or a carnation. Carnations have very sort of thin, pointy leaves. So she wrote a promise of love um on the leaves and then she gave it to a white dove, a white turtle dove to carry to King James. So the lower part of the um, panel shows King James in his prison cell um, and he's got his his lute and an, an illuminated manuscript open and he's got his jousting lance and his jousting shield, which has got, again, the symbol of the Kings of Scots. Um, so it's very much his sort of chivalric, knightly um little den. Um and you can see him stretching out of the window of his cell and the white dove is alighting on the back of his hand and presenting him with the white with the red jilly flower with the promise of of Lady Jane's love. So that's how the story ends. It's all very romantic and, and full of romance yeah. romance in the medieval sense as well as the um you know sort of amorous yeah. Sense. Yeah.
0: <laughs> It's fantastic. You know what? What strikes me is, as you're describing it, is this is almost like an a, an ultimate Pre-Raphaelite object. <laughs> you know, it, it's taken from uh, a poem. It alludes to sort of British, Scottish, English history and mythology, but also mm-hmm. a nod towards the classics. Yes. It, I, I like the idea of the embedded words from the poetry on uh, sort of scrolling. You know, that's a very Pre-Raphaelite thing. Rosetta mm. used a lot, and also it's actually a functional object. So it's almost a nod forward to sort of Arts and Crafts movement, almost. That's right. I mean,
1: it really makes me think of the type of decorated furniture that, for example, Bern Jones. Yes. Yeah making for William Morris. And actually, William Scott did visit Red House sometime in the early 1860s, not quite sure exactly when. So he would have seen the mural at Red House. And he maybe he would have heard about their plans for the murals that were never actually um, undertaken. And he would have seen um, the painted furniture there. So I think this is his own response to what he had seen there, but he'd he'd already created a, a, a very spectacular folding screen, much the same as this, but um, depicting portraits of, of poets, um, not nearly as, as illustrative and and, mm. and more conventional, more Victorian really. Um, so he'd already made a screen. So he obviously had this idea in the back of his mind that he would like to make a de- piece of decorated furniture, but he would choose a screen rather than a, a chair or, or a wardrobe. Um, so um, this is his, perhaps his, his version.
0: Sounds absolutely wonderful. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm just so glad it's not lost forever. That just no. <laughs> it sounds like it'd be pride of place in any collection.
1: <laughs> it will, and it was. I mean, it's obviously it was a very great conservation project. involved, because it's made of leather, and then it's painted on paper, which is then adhered to a canvas support. um, And it involves piano hinges and very thin gold frames. It involved quite a few different specialists. So it was a long and quite um, intricate process. But I had never seen it assembled in storage, the the panels were always separate and when it was conserved, it was always separate. Um, so it was really exciting to see it finally assembled and get a sense of actually the scale because it is a large art object. And something that had always really fascinated me was just this idea of how the screen could be arranged. And we had always wondered about this the central two panels because they have these upper sections um, which are painted on gold leaf. They, it looks as if that these should be shown adjacent to each other rather than folded towards or away from each other, if you see what I mean. So it seemed to make sense that the outer panels should be folded forward, but the inner panels should be flat. And so that would create a niche yeah. rather than this zigzag. And I really liked that idea. Um, and actually when it was assembled, we could see that actually it probably was best to show it that way because um, the piano hinges have, they kind of create a gap between the two center um, panels, which you can see the kind of the light, the daylight shining yes. through. So it does actually look much better in the niche formation. But I really love the idea that this could become like a kind of immersive space it was not just a room divider but it was a space for sitting within almost as if you're sitting within the the jacket of a beautiful illuminated manuscript with these outer um, panels covered in 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 tooled gold leather and I James Leeot had a very large family he he had a wife called Maria and he had 13 surviving children. Um, of, of all ages, there's a wonderful portrait of them all by Arthur Hughes called Christmas at brackendine And it shows all, all the girls and little boys um, beautifully sort of dressed. Um, it's really beautiful. So I just sort of imagined that this was an item of furniture that the whole family might use and that possibly even children would sit within reading illustrated storybooks or dreaming and inventing and imagining um, stories and poems of medieval chivalric romance of their own um so it's unusual in that it's it's not just a two-dimensional painting to hang on the wall it's actually three-dimensional and you can kind of get inside it it's Um, an
0: incredible (laughs) image in 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 your head you know just completely immersive artwork that you can hide inside (laughs) lose yourself but yeah what a what a wonderful thing
1: That's right. And the the National Galleries of Scotland has a very active learning and engagement department. So lots of children come to the galleries in school groups or with families. Um, So I hope, I very much hope that this is going to be a work of art that they will really enjoy seeing. And I do sometimes think that William Bellscott had the Leithart family in mind as he painted it. He was actually godfather to one of James Leithart's sons. Because there are little motifs that you kind of think, oh, a child would absolutely love that. For example, there's a little white dog with a curly tail um yeah, and just you know, yeah the white dog appears again um on the end on the on on, on the last leaf as well, and lots of lovely flowers lot lots to really look at look at and and think about
0: well what a wonderful thing i'm um, um, think I'd need to go to Edinburgh and see this. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll, we'll meet up for a coffee, it will happen.
1: That will be great. <laughs>
0: um now you've got you've got a book out, haven't you, Emily? What
1: that's right. Yes. I I have written um an in-focus book about the King's Square Screen. So this was um this was actually a project that I'd begun before I um begun my PhD thesis. And it was through the research for this book, um that I begun to realize that actually William Buscott was really fascinating. And you know, there's um research based around his uh, um, paintings at Wallington, particularly iron and coal, but there isn't that much about the rest of his work. He wrote his own autobiography Hmm, okay. Which is um, really rich in detail. And it's it's really interesting to read for anybody who's interested in other members of the Pre-Raphaelite social circle because he he was very very sociable. He was very gossipy, and when he wrote his autobiographical notes, he kind of was quite open about his <laughs> his ideas about them. Possibly a little bit too open at, at the time because <laughs> it kind of it created a bit of a um, a stir. A, a, um, some. Some members of the group, especially Swinburne actually, Swinburne was very cross about it all. Um, a, uh, yeah, he, he didn't like the fact that William Bell Scott had written about him. Um, so it did cause a bit of a, a ruction at the time, but it's, it's, a, it's a really good read. So it, there's Scott's own autobiography. Um, and William Fraderman wrote a series of articles, um on the correspondence of William Bell Scott and Alice Boyd, um and also relating to um the way that Scott helped Rossetti when Rossetti was very ill and came up to Stop Hill, Stop Hall in um in, in Scotland. Um, so that's a really interesting read. But there was a real sort of lack of lack of published scholarship on on William Bell Scott and and I got really hooked on it all and so it all developed into a doctoral project which has been a really wonderful opportunity um and i've loved every minute of it
0: and is this the the culmination of of all your research this this book
1: well the book believe it or not was actually written before i began my oh, It begun my written. All, all written it, it, well know. it was but it got <laughs> all very delayed by the pandemic that uh, was the uh, thing okay. so in fact the book has has only just really been, um, although it was written, it, it, the, the production of the book took a really long time. So it was, it, it's been delayed. And, and so it's, it's just out now, this summer. Um, and um, But I felt much happier that I had the whole of the knowledge that I developed through researching my thesis behind this publication now. So I feel um, much more confident in it because um, I've just got... A real uh, breadth of knowledge about his other his other works too, and and especially his his work at Penkill Castle.
0: Well, um, I hope it's available in the gift shop at the National Galleries.
1: It will be, and it's available online, of course.
0: Oh, brilliant! <laughs> Absolutely, yes. We'll... In
1: all the usual ways.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely pop a link in there below for you, Thank you. That's it. Um, Emily. Emily's just been fantastic having you on the podcast thank you for joining us today
1: oh well thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak to you
0: absolutely and any other further hidden artworks you know we're always here a platform for you <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you very much emily for coming on and joining us today it's been a pleasure chatting to you um if you'd like to find out a little bit more about the Pre-Raphaelite Society please visit our website at wwwpre society.org and we'll see you next time. Emily's book William Bell Scott's Screen A Pre-Raphaelite Romance is published by the National Galleries of Scotland and is available now. <laughs>